John chapter 6. This, uh, this week, uh, uh, as many of you know, um, uh, since we've started this church, we do not right now have a church office. And uh, so I have, I have just a ton of books in boxes. And right now they're being kept uh, over in this kind of a shed area Steve Bright has availed for me. Um, and every once in a while, I'll grab a box and kind of rummage through it to find my box uh, or my, the books that I have. It's almost like, you know, having Christmas all over again, right? Um, oh, yeah, I remember that book. And as I was going through one of those boxes, um, I came across a diary that I had uh, wrote some things in um, a little over two years ago. And it was about that time I and my family were going through considerable trial. Um, the finality had not yet hit in that trial, but um, the certainty of where it was going had hit. And... Um, there were some words that I wrote down for my own encouragement, words that were shared with me by friends who were giving me counsel during that time. And I want to begin today just by sharing uh, what was on that page, February 1st, 2010. Here's the first thing I wrote down. In quotes, Rod, get your hands off the wheel and let me drive God. Now, you won't find that in Scripture. Um, that actually wasn't sent to me by God. It was sent to me by uh, a good pastor friend of mine, Tig Vanneman in Michigan. Um, here's another one from another pastor friend uh, by the name of Fred Froman. Um, he, it says, Rod, resist self-pity. Fight hard against disillusionment, especially at what I'm doing. Don't listen to yourself, but speak my truth to your heart, God. And here's the last one. Rod, behind a present frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, God. And again, that's not God, um, but it is someone who is now dead and buried for many years by the name of William Cooper, a great poet, wrote the song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Um, and that comes from his, um, his song, um, oh, what is it? What's it called again? Anyone remember? No, no, no. My mind's drawing a blank here. Well, his other great song, I, we, we've, we've sung it actually here before. I can't remember it. It's just not, it's not there. But um, just a fabulous, fabulous reminder that behind what seems to be a frowning providence, you get that wonderful imagery here. God's providence at work seems to be frowning, but behind all of that, there is a smiling face of God. That God is at work even through that, that difficult time. And um, I, I share that with you because this has been a counsel to me afresh. God does that every once in a while. The things that he stirs in up and when you reflect over them again, it's like, wow, thank you, God, for how you sustain me with those ideas and those thoughts, which really, although not directly from God, were given to me from people who were concerned about what I was going through and wanted to counsel and guide. And those, along with God's word, have helped me uh, to really uh, anchor myself into what was God, God was doing, as well as just to, to settle into his providence, whatever it looked like. And it really speaks a lot to our text today. Um, this is a very familiar story. The story where 
the disciples are on the sea, and a storm brews up, and they're panicked, and they're tired, and they're not sure what they're going to do, and Jesus comes walking on the water, and another one of the Gospels talks about that encounter where Peter then wants to walk on the water too, and he does for a little bit, and then he, he sinks, and that whole encounter goes on, and uh, it's a very, very familiar passage of story, uh, passage of Scripture and, and a story, and I, I just want us to be mindful that um, John has put it in this text for a reason, but, but naturally, as we go through John 6, one of the questions we have is, why does John insert this miracle into this text and not simply go from the events that we talked about last week, the feeding of the 5,000, which we mentioned was more like 15,000, 20,000, to the discourse that he has explaining the feeding of the 5,000. Why do we have this story kind of stuck in there? It just seems kind of strange. It seems odd that he would put it there. But we know that God has a reason. We know that it happened. That's one of the reasons. But it's also because he wants to show us something. He wants to kind of alert us to something. He wants us to see something in the unfolding of this text, in particular John 6, that is really important for us to understand. And it's significant for us to understand. And so he wants to give us that, that relevance. He wants to give us and show us the purpose of that particular uh, story in the greater context of John 6. And um, I think maybe one way to put it is this, that this text, you might want to say, is the food that is going to be set on a plate. And that plate um, really is a, a setting that will help us understand why that food is there and what that food is there to accomplish. And as we go through John 6, there's going to be some things that we're going to you know, put on that, some salt, some pepper, just to help us understand what is happening here. This is not just a story about a storm. John is writing this gospel for a reason, right? For John 20, verse 30 and 31, evidence which leads to belief, which ultimately leads to life. That's the theme of the book. And so as John records this story, it is emphasizing, it is showing us, it's declaring something to us about who Jesus is, but also about you know, our own propensity to not exercise belief and our need of him, and in particular, as it relates to him being the bread of life. And so what we're going to do just to begin with here is we're going to go through John 6. and just, I'm just going to highlight maybe some things that are little things that we need to put on this text, so to speak. A little salt, a little pepper, maybe H1 sauce or A1 sauce. Sorry, HP sauce is what we have in England. I got them mixed up. A1 sauce, right? And it just you're, you're adding it to your food here because we want to understand what this text is all about. It's not just an isolated story that somehow is just stuck in there. There's a reason for it because he's arguing a case because he wants his readers to understand why and what he is saying, okay? So the first part of the fabric that I want us to see, and there's really three pieces of this fabric in John 6 that I want us to see, is the crowd. And we find that in verse um, 14. Um, and no, notice verse 14 and 15, what it says. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, and by the way, that's referring back to the, the fish and the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Ah, we understand who he is. Now, up to this point, are they right? The answer is yes, because Jesus ultimately, one of his offices is prophet, right? 
He is the fulfillment of all those prophets, so they're right. But notice what it says in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It wasn't that they wanted to lean on the fact that he was a prophet and just listen to what he had to say. They actually personally had an agenda. They wanted Jesus to be with them for a particular reason. They had seen and experienced the power of Jesus uh, through that miracle of the the fish and the loaves, and now they want to use Jesus for their own agenda. Then, if you want to jump to chapter 6 and verse uh, 68, um, I want you to notice now what it says here about Judas. Again, this is still the greatest story of Jesus explaining the fish and the loaves and what it all means and the bread of life. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's quite a declaration, right? Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You say, well, wait a second. Remember, you've got to think of this from the perspective of John is writing a gospel, and someone is reading this gospel. So as they're beginning the reading this gospel, there are certain things that are laid out, that are clues, that are indicators. The whole prologue is a clue, an indicator of what is yet to come. He is the word. There's darkness. There's light. Some will believe, some will not believe, right? And as the story is unfolded, we see a picture of Jesus. We see sign of who he is. We see people believing. We see some of those disciples coming together. And now, for the first time, we're like, what? I've chosen you, but there, there's one who is going to betray me? That's all part of the fabric of what's going on here, guys, okay? This is all part of what's going on in this particular context from the beginning of the miracle uh, explained in the, the first part of chapter 6 to, to it being, sorry, declared to it being explained in the latter part of chapter 6, and we have stuck in here then the story of our present text. So there is a driving principle here, and get this, that God's divine agenda can often be under attack by a good well-meaning agenda, and that would refer back to the crowds who wanted Jesus to come and wanted him basically to set up his kingdom and provide the daily food and the daily sustenance for the people, just like he did with the miracle of the fish and the loaves. And you also have this selfish agenda. A selfish agenda and a well-meaning agenda can both attack God's ultimate agenda. In other words, there are things that we do that are good, but may not be what God desires. And there are things that we do that are clearly evil that certainly do not accomplish and are not part of what God desires. So there is pressure from outside, from the crowd. There's also this this clue that there's going to be pressure now from the inside. There's going to be something happening internally that's going to be affecting them. And isn't isn't that true about who we are as a church? Is there not an issue of pressure from the outside taking Jesus and conforming them to their own wishes and making him something that he is clearly not declared to be in Scripture, but it's what he's presented as? And then sometimes within the church, there's, there's betrayals of sort when we weaken the gospel and we, we serve under the umbrella of the church for our own purposes, for our own agendas, and we have that clearly laid out for us in Scripture where the false prophets 
um, would do that. They would talk about Christ, but they would, they would adjust his teaching to suit their own ends. Pursuing money and pursuing uh, power and influence, all under the guise of being a representative of God. Okay? So there's pressure on the outside, there's pressure on the inside. But the, 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 the one on the outside, the crowd and, and their desire is a little more subtle. And I want you to think a little bit with me on some of the things that they wanted Jesus to do. They wanted him to feed the people, to heal the people, to provide financially for them. And those are all good things. Now, when they're referring back to the prophet, they're thinking back to the prophet Moses, who when he was with the children in the wilderness, what did he do? Well, he was the mediator between God and them, and God provided food for them. For how long? 40 years, right? Now, how many of you um, like barbecue ribs? Okay, absolutely. How many of you would like barbecue ribs this afternoon? All right? And if someone wants to volunteer, well, I'll let you go now and get things ready, okay? Um, but then what if you had barbecue ribs on Monday and then on Tuesday and then on Wednesday? And then Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, for 40 years. <laughs> Barbecue ribs. Now, we might be walking around, you know, like this, right? The point is, God did provide. He provided in abundance, and they were, they were never at a place where they needed food because God sustained them during that time in the wilderness. And so, when they're thinking about this prophet coming, this one from Deuteronomy 18, coming, they're thinking that Jesus now is coming, and he's going to be that prophet. He is going to provide satisfaction for the people to keep their bellies full, to provide for their, their particular needs, their health needs. And, and the reality is, Jesus came... And what was he doing with these people? He was healing them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He's teaching them. All these things are taking place while he's ministering to them. And all of that, friends, all of that is good stuff. But get this also. It would be easy then when this crowd comes to Jesus and they want to make him king. Notice it says he perceived that. He could see into their heart. He knew what they were trying to do. And we've got to step back and remember that Jesus is the God-man. And so he experienced, he experienced, might want to say, temptation that would be human temptation, just like we experience. Now, he never gave into it, but he always felt that same temptation and pressure. And here's, here's 20,000 people gathered around him thinking to themselves, we want you to be our king. Did he have the power to make that happen? Did he, does he have the leadership skills to make that happen? Absolutely. Does he have the compassion for those people whom he loved to make that happen? The answer is yes. But listen, he knew that his agenda was far greater than their agenda. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted earthly and, and belly satisfaction. They wanted physical healing. Jesus, if he had given in to that temptation, which we know he never could or would because he's God, but you understand the temptation was there. If he had given in to that temptation, he may have provided for them the satisfaction 
of their bellies being filled and their bodies healed, but it would still only be a temporary satisfaction. And the history of Israel is a history of God providing temporary satisfaction, temporary salvation, temporary provision through all the prophets, through all the ways in which God worked, through all the sacrifices. They were always temporary, always temporary, and always looking forward to that one who ultimately would be in that place who would provide total and complete and permanent and eternal satisfaction. And he would feed not just the belly, but he would feed the soul. He would heal the the sinfulness of mankind by the sacrifice on the cross. His agenda was far greater than simply providing immediate temporal satisfaction. And so what we're told here is that Jesus withdraws. He retreats to a quiet place. He does that a lot. You don't want to read too much into this, but knowing that he was also human at this point in time, during that time we find him communing with God, right? Communing with his Father, you might want to say. We find him also just thinking through things. We find him, I think, fighting the fight of this agenda in his humanity to bring glory to God. That's what he was doing in the garden. He's fighting through, uh, not my will, but thine be done. So he's he's fighting through all that. And I think that's an honest perspective of of what Jesus in his God-man situation was doing throughout his ministry, and here we see it on display. He withdraws. They want him to be king, but he withdraws. He steps away. The disciples don't go with him. He is off, going off by himself for that time to be in a quiet place. And friend, there's a a subtle distortion of the gospel that we've got to be careful of, and hear this. When we substitute good deeds for the gospel, men are still in their sins and without hope. May I ask you a question? Is it a good thing to provide a meal for someone? Is it a good thing for you to come alongside and and, and help someone who's struggling physically? Yeah. If you had the power to heal, would it be a good thing to exercise that, to provide some, some relief for that person? Absolutely. Those aren't bad things, but they are not, from Jesus' perspective, because of who he is, the ultimate thing. Sadly, however, we in Christendom, substitute those good deeds for the gospel. So what does that look like today? And I want you to think through this with me. Um, What does it look like today? Uh, In the 19th century, there was a pastor by the name of Washington Gladden. You may know the name, you may not. Um, he, He pastored in Columbus, Ohio, and he looked at the implications of the Industrial Revolution on his community locally, as well as all the communities, in particular in the United States, and he was also thinking about in Europe. And what he saw was the unequal distribution of wealth, growing slums, disease, and all-around devastation. Gladden was an evangelical pastor who loved people. He loved his people. He had a big heart and the plight of man and the circumstances that he saw weighed heavy on his heart. But he also had a bent in philosophy that was the rage at that point in time to find the real Jesus in the Word of God. And that pursuit of finding the real Jesus in the Word of God was really a pursuit that we now call the pursuit of liberalism and the pursuit 
of higher criticism that ultimately, when it was all said and done, punched out a Jesus that wasn't necessarily Savior who died on the cross for the sins of mankind, but a Jesus who came to be an example to follow. And through his influence, a movement started called the social gospel. And the social gospel basically um, believed that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God to them was where poverty would be eradicated, where disease would come to an end, where hunger would be alleviated. They would say that God has called the church, hear this, to usher in the kingdom of God. They believed that society would change through loving one another, educating society, bringing equality to a society. The goal was to usher in an earthly utopia of sorts that they believed would be heaven, would be that kingdom, where love for one another would be present, where compassion for one another would be evident, where suffering would be distant. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Anyone here love to be able to stop hunger in the world? Anyone here love to be able to stop disease? I mean, if you had the, the answer to, you know, some disease and you could give it, would you love to be able to hand that to the world? Absolutely. But listen to the following prayer of Kenneth Greet. And this was back in the 80s. So this is, this is over 100 years later. The same ideology, the same thinking, the same social gospel is still present, friends. It is actively at work, especially in the mainline denominations that have abandoned the gospel. Here's what he said, praying at St. Paul's Cathedral um, in London. He says this, Help us to identify the common enemy of all mankind and to work together for the eradication of poverty, hunger, and disease. His view of the church's role and function is to eradicate poverty, hunger, and disease. It's a social gospel pursuing social ends. Now, friends, it's subtle because if you say, hey, I don't believe in the social gospel, does that mean that you don't, you don't care about people's hunger? <laughs> you don't care about people's disease? Absolutely not, but that's how it's perceived. Ah, so you don't care about people. No, I care about people like Jesus cares about people. And Jesus cares about people so much that he withdrew. He cares about people so much that he knew there was a greater agenda. Did he provide satisfaction for that particular need of a meal? Absolutely. Did he provide healing for people who were struggling in their physical ailments? Absolutely. But he didn't do it everywhere and all the time. Because there was a greater agenda at work. Something far more important than temporary physical satisfaction. Friends, what we just read about, the social gospel, is not what the New Testament teaches. It's not the gospel. It's a substitute. It's insufficient. It's empty. But hear this. It is rebounding today. Even with, under the umbrella of Christianity, there is a move toward caring for the poor, caring for those who are you know, uh, homeless in the streets and that kind of stuff. And that's good. But when it replaces the gospel, we have a problem. When it becomes absolutely necessary as part of the gospel, it, it is a problem. It is natural for those who are followers of Christ to ultimately have emotions that would be compassion, right? Caring for those things flows out of someone who is walking with God, who says, aha, if there's something I can do, I want to do that here. 
It is not the replacement, though, of the gospel. It is not the gospel. Anyone here, was the last time you've been to the YMCA? Young Men's what? Christian Association. I don't think if you went to the YMCA today that someone would stop and say, listen, hey, before you go and play basketball, can I share the gospel with you? It's just become a building that is a social organization to help people to provide activity. It's abandoned the gospel. The gospel isn't there. And friends, it is sad when organizations start out well with good purposes, but ultimately the social agenda basically eclipses the gospel. And we've got to be careful that in our desire to help people, to meet people, to encourage people, that we don't abandon the gospel because of the temporary, temporal satisfaction that they need. And you say, well, how does this all fit in here? It fits in because this is what the crowd was after. They wanted this temporary satisfaction. And they were pressuring Jesus to provide that for them, thinking that's the answer. Overthrow Rome. Be the king here. Provide. Satisfy. And ultimately, that would happen, but in a completely different way. Isn't it interesting, though, that some of those same attitudes of the social gospel are part of our humanistic society today? Listen to the politics, right? That's all part of the fabric of our society, and friends, we've got to be careful that we are not drifting away when we need to be focusing on the gospel. Listen, can you imagine the words of Paul saying, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to this world to save men from their social economic crisis. Or to save men, or he came into the world to end poverty, hunger, and disease. No, he says, Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, that brings us um, to this last thing. I'm sorry, I, I didn't put this up there. All right, that's, that's the quote. Um, I'll put it up there at the end if you wanted to copy it down. Um, the last thing is the words of Christ. So we're still talking about what's some of the fabric that kind of speaks to this, this context. The words of Christ. As you go through this book, one of the first things that stands out to us, if you look at the second bullet there, is Jesus knew what he would do. What does that tell us? That's in the story of the, the fish and the loaves. He, you know, he asked him, hey, what are you going to do? But he already knew what he was going to do. That tells us, that tells the reader that now we see Jesus as being sovereign in the affairs, right? So any story that we come to now, we're, we're, we have this as a backdrop. He knew what he was going to do. He knows what he is going to do. As he's asking the disciples to do something, as he's faced with a challenge, he already knows what he's going to do. And the, and the discovery for us is, what is he going to do? And how is he going to do it? Then there's this explanation about the fact that the purpose of his miracle the sign, the loaves and the fishes, was for him to declare himself as being the bread of life. Some will receive him, some will reject him. That's all part of the fabric of what's going on here. So now with this background, let's enter this story, and I'm going to put it this way. If you weren't here last week, the message title was Basket Cases, and that really represented the disciples. And just looking at those 12 baskets that were there. Um, so here's how I'm going to say it. Jesus is teaching the basket cases, that's us and the disciples, it's the only way I can insult you guys, okay? Um, lovingly, all right? Jesus is teaching the basket cases about their stormy places that they are sprinkled with divine graces. Isn't that? See, it all fits, right? He's teaching the basket cases about their stormy places that they are sprinkled with divine graces. And we have here a story of 
a stormy place. I'm going to put it another way. Jesus is sovereign over the stormy places, and those stormy places are opportunities for divine graces. Now the question is, what are stormy places? Well, they're places of confusion, of trial, of suffering, of fear, of waiting, of loneliness, changing circumstances, discouragements. And friends, that's just a short list, but you are likely to be struggling with multiple stormy places. Now, as I say that, there's a lot of different scenarios that are popping into your head. And I know because I've interacted with you, some of you are struggling with health issues, some of you are struggling with family issues, some of you are struggling with job issues and mortgage issues, and there's all sorts of stuff that's happening right here in this room. There are stormy places going on, right? And God wants to speak to us today with four timeless truths that speak into these stormy places however, that are fed with understanding from these surrounding fabrics that we sprinkled on this text that help us really to understand it, okay? So let's jump in and let's look at the first one. He sends us is the first thing. Jesus sends us into those stormy places. Now, friends, we've got to embrace that. Let's just read what the text says. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, all four of the Gospels talk about this story. You go to the book of Mark, here's how he puts it. He says, Jesus made them get into the boat. That word is compelled them. They didn't have a choice. As masters say, no, listen, get out of here. Get in the boat and go. So we find out he did that before he went off into the mountain to pray. He forces them to get into the boat. Now, you've got to think through what's going on here. Think about what the, the disciples have been experiencing. They just had a day of incredible power demonstrated to them. Jesus takes this minuscule fish and loaves, and he, he feeds all these people, and there's just baskets full left over. Now, probably the people, 20,000 people, are sitting there thinking, oh, this is you know, kind of cool, you know, no big deal. No, it was an incredible day. So, they, they just had, this is almost like the, the, the high of spiritual activity. Just an incredible event took place. And sometimes when those events take place, you just want to stay in it. You want to enjoy it. You want to celebrate. You want to talk about it. Well, not only that, they were his disciples. Yeah, well, you know, me and uh, Jesus have been hanging out for a few weeks right now. I'm in the inner circle. You know, I was helping hand out the fish and the loaves, just so you know that. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm, you don't know. It doesn't tell us in the text, but you wonder what was going on during that time. Um, but I think this is where we, we allow ourselves to, to, to take the fabric of what's going on to help us understand um, what, what some of the reasons why Jesus is sending them into these stormy places. Now, these stormy places, first of all, are divinely ordained. When he sends us into these stormy places, when he compels them to get in, he has a reason, he has a purpose, he knows what he's doing. Behind all of that, now listen, someone else may have been the reason why you're in the storm, or it may have been something completely out of control, like, you know, you get a flat tire. It's no one's fault in particular, it just happens. But understand, whether it's a person or whether it's no one's fault, behind that is God accomplishing his purposes, Okay? 
So we must understand he's doing that for his own redemptive purpose, also for what he is doing in your life. So now the question for us is this. Why is God sending us, compelling us into the stormy places? You might be thinking to yourself, as you look at your stormy place, God, why are you sending me into this place? Why now? I was doing fine. I really didn't need this. This new journey you have me on is too painful. I mean, can you imagine the disciples like, well, why, why are we getting, I don't want to get in the boat. I'm enjoying my time here. Now, sometimes God says, no, you go, you go. And you, you jump into it, and sometimes you jump into it because someone else has, has, has done something, and you're, you're right, I'm, I'm on this journey now. Here's where it is. You don't like it. You're arguing with God. You're questioning God. You're, you're, you're having this kind of discussion with him. Friends, it's, it's normal. It's natural for us to do that. Now, I just want to think through some of the arenas where this might be true in us. Some of you who have been visiting for a while, who have come here, have shared heartache, struggle at maybe the place that you've been and what it is that you're trying to find in a church. And you're coming with that heartache and you're full of questions. Not in a sense questions about our church, but you're having questions about, God, what are you doing? Where are you leading? How are you directing? Um, there may be confusion about, you know, what, what happened at that previous place and what's been happening in my life and how did I get to this place? And uh, sometimes there's, a, there's simply a desire for guidance or, or for a place just to rest and that kind of stuff. And friends, God does that. He sends us into a boat and says, go. And you're, 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 you're kind of saying, why and what's, what's going on? That's part of it. Sometimes those stormy places could be the fact that you've lost a job and, or maybe you know that you're going to lose it soon or you potentially could or it could be the fact that you're losing your home, you've lost your home or you're fighting to keep your home and you're just struggling through all that. It could be the sicknesses that you're experiencing, the disease that you have, some physical pain, some other kind of suffering. It could be relationships, parents with children. Um, it could be uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend trying to sort out what it means to honor God and what that looks like. It could be marriages that are in maintenance mode rather than actually surviving, or sorry, rather they're surviving rather than thriving. It's in those stormy places that God wants to send us. Now the question is why, and I have three things for you. Number one, the first thing is to protect us. It may not be the reason why, but it could be the reason why. You have to ask yourself, what is God protecting me from? What is God protecting the disciples from? Okay, now, you step back, you see how some of the fabric fits in here. I think the disciples are being protected because of all this incredible experience from the influence of that crowd. It could be physically, first of all. It could also be, you might want to say, philosophically. Because the crowd is in this religious frenzy. They want to take Jesus. They want him to be their king. They have an ideology. They have an agenda. And it's so easy for the disciples to think, yeah, he could be king because they don't don't understand it all. They're not there yet. That sounds great. Yeah, he should be king and get caught up with their agenda when that's not the agenda that's ultimately going to honor God. So God, or Jesus, sends them out to protect them. You guys remember Chronicles of Narnia, the first one? You remember how all the children in London were being put on trains and set out into the countryside? Why? For their protection. There's a lot of crying going on. There's parents, you know, struggling because they're sending their children on the train and they're maybe going to some family they know. They may be going to some family they don't know. But there's a heartache going on there. But the purpose behind it is their safety and their protection. And friends, sometimes God sends us 
into a stormy place to protect us. We may not necessarily see it at first. Now, what is he going to protect us from? Ourselves? <laughs> All right? False teaching? Complacency? Um, some besetting sin that my present context may, you know, I, I just need to be removed from there so that I can deal with that particular sin that just is so overwhelming me. It could be um, protecting us from some kind of a toxic spirituality, some place where the, 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 the you know, health of, uh, of, of your walk with Christ is, is being negatively affected and, and you just need to get out of there. It could be other negative influences on your family. Now hear this. Is it possible that Jesus would rather have his children suffer physically than drift theologically? Is it possible that he would rather you go through a difficult trial to save your theology, to save your understanding of who he is? I think the answer is yes. History has shown how persecution of the church has resulted in powerful multiplication of the church, right? And how trial and suffering actually, when it's all said and done, you look back over it, you say, ah, if it weren't for this, I wouldn't have grown in this way. I wouldn't have grown in this way. I wouldn't have learned this. I wouldn't be at this place in my maturity with God. The point is that when you may see, or what you may see is inconvenient and difficult uh, or a hardship may be in fact the hand of your loving God protecting you from some false idea, some false people, some false or some bad circumstances. And friends, we must ask the question, is God protecting me from something? So as you're looking at your stormy place, is he? And you know what? You may not even know what it is. But that might be exactly what he's doing. All right? Secondly, to teach us. Now, you know this. The Gospel of Mark adds and sheds some more insight onto this passage tells us a little bit about what was going on in the mind of the disciples. Verse 51 of Mark 6, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Ah, that's huge insight. The disciples did not comprehend the significance of what was going on with the miracle that Jesus performed. Now, John is going to explain the discourse, which kind of gives you an understanding of why it needs to be explained. Maybe not just for the crowd, but ultimately for the disciples. Because at the end of John 6, what happens? There's a bunch of disciples who say, this is too hard for us, and they leave. Jesus is working on the disciples still. This is still on-the-job training. It just happened to involve 20,000 people. But he's teaching them. And he's teaching them because their hearts are hard and they still don't understand. So Jesus takes them into the stormy place, listen, to once again reveal himself to them. Well, isn't that like our wonderful God? He is patient with us. He loves us. He cares for us. And he's looking for ways to teach us about himself again and again. Now we might just see the storm, but Jesus is saying, I want you to see me in the storm. And from your stormy place, um, God simply is revealing himself. He wants you to, to have a fresh awareness of his character and the fact that he's in control. Listen, you may need to be slapped with a stormy place 
so that you can come out of the fog of your unbelief. And friends, that is an act of love by a gracious God. It's an act of love toward you. Now see, we, 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 this, is, this is preaching the gospel to yourself, right? This is preaching who, how wonderful and how precious and how glorious is the character of God that he would desire to send me into a stormy place because of how it's going to help me in my understanding of who he is so that I can glorify him while I'm here on this earth. We don't necessarily see it that way, but that is what God does. Now James reminds us, and we started our service with this, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I, I want you to, to see the progression there, yes, but I want you to see this, this count it all joy. It's the same word that is used to describe um, uh, this idea of reckoning. We're going to get to that, but it's, it's a word that is wrestling. It's wrestling us into a place. And Jesus is teaching us through our trial and in our stormy places more about him, more about ourselves, more about his will for our lives. Uh, when I do biblical counseling, one of the things that, that I like to do is I draw a little box. And, and I, what I want people to do is I want them to think through the trial, through their experience, what are they learning about Jesus and, or God and his character? Just write it down. You say, ah, the, the, the purpose of this trial may not be for me to get out of the trial. It may simply be for me to learn more about God. And we need to have that awareness that that's what's going on here, right? The last thing here, why does he send us? The last thing is to grow us, kind of flows out of this. Um, his purpose, his goal is maturity along with his own glory. So our stormy places are training grounds for slow and steady conformity to Christ-likeness, right? It's growth. That's the first thing. The second, the second timeless truth here about stormy places is this. He watches us. He watches us. Now again, um, Mark's gospel helps us a little bit because he tells us in that gospel, chapter 6 and verse 48, when Jesus was up in the mountain, it says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. It's a wonderful picture that Jesus was observing the disciples out on the lake in the storm. He's watching. Jump back to John, verse uh, 17 and following. It says, it, it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. This was a wind storm. Now, you usually think of a storm, you're thinking about the you know, the waves, right? Kind of going up in the air. But the waves crashing and going high are all the result of the wind. And I just pause and stop here. Sometimes what you see in front of you that is part of your stormy place is really not the storm. It is the effect of something else that's going on. I mean, the wind is what caused the waters to rise up, Right? You may be going through a storm, and what you see in front of you, you're like, oh, why is this happening? But it's actually happening because of something else. But all we're focusing is on what we see. Uh, just the point here is it's, it's indirect. We're told here this is, a, this is the wind that affected the water. And so sometimes we, we have a hard time sorting through our stormy places because we don't see actually what the, the real source of it is so that we can figure out what's going on here. 
But like I talked about before, you know, he is behind all of that. Now, the, t- the topography of Galilee, if you've ever been to Galilee, it's a beautiful place. But there are these sheer kind of quick mountains. They go up very, very steeply. And every once in a while, the, the way the, the winds blow, it blows right through and causes a great storm just to kind of hit the lake. And uh, so it's, it's not something you can necessarily plan. You can be out on the, on, on, on the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, boom, it happens, okay? It's not like you look off way into the horizon, you see a storm coming like we would hear. It's like, oh, okay, you know, the fog's rolling in. No, these things whipped up real fast, and they caused these storms to happen, okay? Um, and life, friends, is like that, isn't it? It doesn't always, doesn't always happen, you know, oh, here it comes. Okay, better get prepared. You know, start getting the plywood out and hammering up the, the windows. And you know, No, they happen, boom, quickly. And here you are, you find yourself in the storm. It's like, ah, what am I going to do, right? But all that time, get this, Jesus is watching us. Now, there's a caution here. There's a caution for us as we read this story because ultimately we know the end of the story that they eventually get to the shore, Right? And we can read this story and think, okay, so Jesus then is going to bring an end to my stormy place. Not necessarily true. At least not here on this earth. <laughs> Your stormy place ultimately will end when you stand in the presence of God. Okay? So we've got to be careful. We're not reading too much into this, and I don't want to give you false anticipation of false hope. What I am telling you and what Scripture is revealing for us are timeless truths to, first of all, say that he sends us into the storm, but when we're in that storm, he is always watching us. However long it might be, however short it may be, however high the waves are, however difficult it is, he is watching us. Now, there are two descriptions of God or his activity that I think are helpful here. The first one is, we'll call it his omnipresence. If I were to ask, you know, a people that are sitting together like this, all right, give me, give me a, you know, an attribute of God. This is usually one of the first five that is mentioned. You know, he's always with us, right? Talking about his omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's just, you know, wherever you go, that's where he is. And friends, that is, that is a comfort to us. In fact, it's, it's part of the fabric of his love to say that he will never leave us, he'll not forsake us, he'll be with us to the end of the age. We love this attribute of God, right? All right? We wrap ourselves in the comfort and the confidence of God's omnipresence. But at times I wonder if our understanding of God's omnipresence is almost kind of from Star Wars. It's like, you know, may the force be with you, right? As if God's omnipresence is a distant reality. And that's why it's important to understand this, too. And that is the, 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 the reality of God's imminence, his imminence. Let me kind of paint the picture this way. Let's just say you take your kids to a park or maybe you go swimming. And you're, you know, you're the parent, you're, you're there. You let the kids go out into the park. You're letting them go out into the pool. And they're out there playing. And there's all sorts of other kids there. Um, and they're having a great old time. But listen, because you're the parent, you know... Your children, you know what they look like, you know how they move, you know what they sound like, and when there is a struggle, you are a lickety-split right there. Now, we don't have this context here, but let's just say that we had a nursery. You've been in a church that has a nursery. I remember when we were growing up, I was in a church, and there probably was about you know, 12 to 15 kids in this nursery. It was up the hall a little way, and moms would typically sit toward the back of the auditorium, and 
they would hear. And you could hear all this, but a mom knows the voice of her child. She can pick it out. Now, the general reality here is you're sitting, you're watching your kids play, you're watching them in the pool, and that's kind of like what omnipresence is like. You're seeing the whole thing, you're aware of it. Eminence is, I'm here with you now. I'm with you. I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. You are here now. And that's fleshed out in Scripture. Adam tried to hide from the presence of God. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm trying to hide from his general presence. No, he just didn't. He was trying to hide from him physically being there. Somehow they communed in the garden there. David, Psalm 139, verses 7 and following, listen to what he says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Lead me, hold me. It's not just his omnipresence. It's his imminence with him specifically, guiding, directing, helping. Paul tells us in a sermon in Acts 17, here's what he says as he's speaking to his audience, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Well, we know he is omnipresent, but specifically he is there, near us. We're told that we are sparrows. We're like the hairs on the head. He watches us, he knows us, and he is with us. And hear this. And oftentimes when we pray, we pray, Lord, be with us today. Does that mean we don't believe in God's omnipresence? No. Now, it could be we just habitually say that, you know. Lord, thank you for this food, you know, ba ba da ba da Well, it might just be habitual, right? Lord, be with us this day. It's kind of like the beginning of your prayer. But you can, you can pray. And I, I've actually kind of been, had my eyes open a little bit to this. That we, it's good actually to pray, Lord, be with us. When you're talking about, Lord, we understand the context of your omnipresence, but, Lord, we want your imminence. We want you here with us now. Okay? It's not saying you're denying his omnipresence. It's saying that you want that intimate reality of his presence and his activity in your life right now to be bearing on what you are doing. So, friends, it's a good thing. Because you want to be walking with him. You want to be talking with him. You want to be him to be guiding you. So this omnipresence is a theological backdrop. His imminence is a special reality we long for in the context of what he is doing and in the storms of life. Um, and he is watching us. So how does he watch us? He watches us by his omnipresence. He also watches us by being there right with us. And you're flopping in the water in that pool, and he sees your hands. He sees your your activity, he hears your screams, and boom, he is there. He's not just watching from a distance. So, Jesus sends us into the stormy places. He watches us in the stormy places, but watching is not distant, cold, and detached because along with the watching, there comes also his help, okay? He helps us. Now, let me ask you this question. What have you learned from previous stormy places that God has brought you into? What have you learned? What has he taught you? What's really interesting about John's gospel is that he doesn't record all the same things that the other gospels record. In fact, that's a huge chunk that he does not include. So what we have here is actually not 
the first storm the disciples have experienced. This is the second time they've been on Galilee where a storm has come up. The first time is when Jesus was with them in the boat, but you remember he was asleep. And the storm is raging, and they're freaking out. They're afraid. They're panicked. And they're, they're panicked and afraid of the storm. Now the storm rises up, and we're not told that they're afraid of the storm. We're told, ultimately, that they're afraid of what? They're afraid of Jesus, who they think is a ghost. You know, I just asked the question, have they learned anything from their previous experience? Likely, they're not concerned about the storm. They've experienced God at work in that storm. Now what they're freaking out at is, who's this person walking on the water? Okay. And I think that it's important for us to realize that God is constantly teaching us in various stormy places things that we bring into new stormy places. All right. He wants us to be growing in that sense. Now, let's read verse 19 and following. When they had rowed about three or four miles, if you just want to experience this, go up to Lake Chabot, rent a rowboat, and row. You may not go in a straight line. And if the wind is blowing, you may not be going anywhere near straight. You may just be going in circles, right? This is hard work. It's miles. We're, we're told because of some of the, the data we have in the other Gospels that they were probably in there at least six hours, and it's dark. It's in the middle of a storm, all right? Hey, let's just all go do that. Let's just all experience what they have experienced. This is not fun. This stormy place was dangerous. It was difficult. And I'm sure that they were disillusioned through the whole thing. All right? But, verse 20, it says, They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. This idea of walking, it's a word that actually literally, the idea is gliding. So it's not Jesus kind of like stomping on the water, you know. I'm coming, hey guys, I'm coming to the boat, you know, boom, 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 right? It's more like he's, he's just gliding on the surface. Boom, 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 boom. And it says he came near. In fact, the other gospel says, and he was going to pass by. So it's like he's gliding. Now, I don't know about you. But if you're out in a boat in the middle of the night and you see someone just kind of sliding all over the place, all right, you're probably not going to say, oh, look, they've arrived. No, you, you understand there's something unusual going on here. Not just that they're on the water, but this is really, really unusual. And Jesus then um, gives them some words of comfort. He, so, so he helps them with their fear, first of all, with his words. It is I do not be afraid. Now, words are, these are words that comfort, they're words that counsel, they're words that correct, um, they're words that confront. God's word is so critically important for us when we are in the midst of a stormy place. I cannot emphasize that enough. It is so important to be listening to God's word when you are in the stormy place. It is normal to question. It is normal to be confused. It is normal to have 
emotions that are, that are bouncing around from anger to despair to despondency to, to uncertainty, all that kind of stuff. It's normal for your flesh to flourish during those times. And we need the Word of God to speak into our hearts and conform us to His will. And sadly, as I've interacted with lots of people, it is often God's Word that is neglected when they need them the most. Now hear this, our emptiness, our numbness, our frustration, our anger at God can callous our heart and shield us away from the precious salve of his glorious word. I mean, I've talked with people and they've just gone through this incredible tragedy and I say, are you opening the word? And they say, I, I can't. I don't want to. I'm angry with God. And I understand that. I understand those emotions. Those are real emotions. So, friends, it's important for us to fight through those feelings of unbelief, but we must determine to do that now before, I say, the storm is raging. To determine that I am going to go to God's Word. It's going to be part of the fabric of what I need during that time. The Word of God needs to be central. The Word of God needs to come to bear during that time. If you and I do not determine to do that now, it's likely that we won't have the resolve then because we'll be so emotional. Friends, we've got to bring God's word to bear. So um, why is this important? Because God chooses to bring us comfort and guidance through his word, not subjective, mystical encounters. And in those times of struggle, we often want to feel better. And so we... We tend to replace God's counsel through his words with feelings of help for instant gratification rather than feelings that come as a result of feeding on God's word and knowing that he's sovereign, that knowing he has a purpose that gives us perspective and confidence and endurance for what we have before us. And friends, it's so important that we plan purposefully to have God's word as part of that fabric. It's God's word understood and applied that bring feelings of comfort and joy. And this is why we go back to James 1 when it says, count it all joy. It's that same word that is used, that Paul uses when he says, um, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. That word reckon is a term that is used to describe accounting. You're posting something to a particular account. So it's like James is saying, listen, when you're in this trial, count it all joy. So you have this trial, you have this stormy place, and you're saying, count it all joy. And you're like, oh, I don't want to put it in the joy category, but I'm going to fight it over here, and I'm going to put it there. And I've got to put it there. And when I fight and I put it there, what does he say? It produces steadfastness. And steadfastness produces hope. We have to fight against our unbelief and put our stormy place in the context where we're saying, God, you are God. I'm going to glorify you in this place. And when we've done that, he is at work growing us. Count it all joy. is not just like, oh, okay, be joyful. No, it's, it's a wrestling match. And, guys, that's the way it is when we're going through trials. It's not just like, well, just, just change your perspective. No, you've got to fight against your unbelief and all these feelings that are there to say, I've got to think about this God's way. I've got to have his perspective. I've got to have an awareness of what he desires here. And you fight yourself into that place. And that's why 
Godly friends are really, really helpful. Godly friends that can listen to all your complaining, your crying out, your anger, all the stuff that you're experiencing and can just not take it personally and then say, you know what? I want to help you gain God's perspective. I want to help you wrestle your trial into the joy category. Those are good friends if you have them. These are not good friends. When you're pouring out all your heart and all the nastiness that's there because you're struggling, and they're like, yeah, that's right, and yeah, you should. And that's not what you need at that point in time. What you need is someone to gently listen and to carefully and lovingly guide you to help you put that into the joy category. My friends, God's word is so important. That's what, that's what God does. And the issue here is not with God's truth. We embrace God's truth. The people that are fighting to put their circumstance in the joy category already know God's truth. It's the application of God's truth in their life that they need. That's the battle. That's the fight. So he helps us with his words. Secondly, he helps us with his power. Hear this. The disciples specifically, because of their circumstance, saw the effect of God's power at work. The other gospel accounts just reinforce that as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, what happened to the storm? Calm. That isn't always how things work with us. We don't always see God's power. We don't always see how God specifically is working through this world and through people and through circumstances to accomplish his purposes. But we know because God has revealed himself in his word over and over and over again that he is a God of power who does accomplish his purposes through the affairs of mankind. That even though I can't see it by faith, I know he is working his mighty hand in my situation. We rest on his power. It's not my power. It's his power to accomplish his purposes in my life. Now, the wind ceased, the water settled down, and it was the third of these miracles that took place. The first one was Jesus walking on the water. The second one from the other gospel accounts is Peter walking on the water, even for a little bit. The third one is the stopping of the wind. We'll look at the fourth one in just a little bit here. Um, well, let's just jump ahead to the next one. I think this is that's good for now. He helps us with his words, with his power. He completes us. Here's the last one. He completes us. Notice verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. <laughs> they were glad to take him into the boat. Phew. Now that we know who you are. Now that we understand. Again, the other gospel accounts talk about they, they worshipped him. <laughs> they believed. Right? They brought him into the boat. They were glad to take him in the boat, and, they immediate, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Fourth miracle, immediately. Boom, here they were, out in the middle, and now Jesus gets in, boom. They're taken to the land and to their destination. Now, once they recognized who Jesus was, they were comforted by his words, they welcome into the boat, and immediately they're taken to that destination, to that land. Now get this, Jesus always, always, always completes what he starts. He always finishes the job. Now your trial may not be over. He is still accomplishing his purpose. He has not abandoned you. He will always bring you home in some way, shape, or form 
according to his purposes, if you're still in the middle of that trial, he's not done working in you for his glory through that trial. There's no issue as to whether Jesus would get to Jerusalem, be mocked and scorned, hang on a cross, and cry out, it is finished. He knew what he was going to do, and he would do it. He always finishes what he starts. There's no question that he would rise from the tomb and ascend into heaven and be at the right hand of the Father. His plans and purposes are secure. He knew what he would do, right? He knows what he is doing, and he is now doing it. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this, Philippians 1.6, a passage we love. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he, talking about Christ, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end, at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's where I'm getting this word complete from. He completes us. He finishes his job. He finishes his work through that trial. It's all part of his work in us. And so Paul also tells us that his preaching and teaching this truth is his passion. This is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. And then, of course, we recognize that Jesus is hard at preparing, working hard at preparing um, all right, sorry, Paul is working hard, or Jesus, you could say, is working hard, preparing his church to be presented as his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, presenting his bride in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's all part of your trial, is to be a part of that preparation to be presented before God the Father. So this is God at work in the midst of our storm, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of those stormy places. There are influences from the outside that have a bearing. He's trying to convince us. He's trying to show us. He's trying to reveal himself uh, in the midst of that particular trial. He's protecting us from all these influences. There is the potential of this influence coming yet that's on the horizon that in those particular disciples. But it's all part of his plan. And so the point ultimately here in this, this last one, he completes us, is this, the, that, that the stormy place is not the end, but Jesus ultimately is able to bring us home. He isn't without any ability to do that. He totally is in control, and he is going to finish the job when he is ready to finish the job in you. Now, some concluding thoughts. Number one. We are not called to usher in his kingdom, but to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom. Now listen, the, these influences are there. If, if, if you are experiencing a stormy place and someone comes to you with a social gospel, what are they cared about? They're cared about your health, you know, food, clothing, that kind of stuff, right? Now that's all good. But God has not called us ultimately to give a gospel of ushering in the kingdom, we don't usher in the kingdom. The church does not somehow create this wonderful utopia. Jesus does. It's called him coming to this earth and setting up his kingdom and his reign on the earth. That is the new Jerusalem. That is the new era. Our job is to proclaim the kingdom that is the gospel about the kingdom. 
It's to proclaim that gospel. It's not to usher in that kingdom. You see the difference there? Friends, the last time I looked around, things aren't getting better. All right? Hope and change is not a biblical agenda. I'm not trying to be cute or political here. I'm saying this all flows from the social gospel agenda. Our job is to preach the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, because we are God's children, we look around and we have compassion on people and help them with temporary things. But knowing those temporary things are temporary and really do not ultimately matter because if they were to die today, their eternity would be a disaster in hell unless they repent and embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That's what matters. The second thing is this. We must be careful to not allow our good deeds to be a substitute for the gospel, which is another way of what I've, I was just talking about. Okay? And it's so easy. This has become popular within the church. It really has recently. I would say in the last five or ten years, there's a real move toward social interaction with organizations that are helping the maybe people around the world. It's, it's big in missions now. You know, go and provide for the people, help them kind of with their own particular culture and organize that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, where's the gospel in this? And it's not that what they're doing is bad, but it's not the ultimate purpose. I don't, I don't see any record of Paul going into a city and saying, listen, you don't have water here. Let's get a team and let's build a you know, let's create a well, and we can build this thing, and maybe if we do that, people will come, and they'll listen, and all that kind of... No, he goes into a town. What does he do? He stays at someone's house. He preaches the word. He preaches the word, and people come because they know their ultimate satisfaction is the gospel. It's not simply having food in their tummy or water in their mouths. And when I say that, you're like, well, you don't care about people. No, I absolutely do. But understand, it's the gospel that ultimately gives satisfaction for life. It's not having these other things. The third thing is we are to embrace the stormy places with joy, knowing that in them and through them he is working his purpose for his glory and our ultimate good. You should be asking questions like, God, what are you teaching me? How are you protecting me? How are you conforming me to your will? How are you, cho how are you choosing to use me? Um, what's, what's funny here is that um, this particular story from the Gospel of Mark is a passage that I preached on a lot a couple of years ago during a season where I was not pastoring anywhere. I was filling pulpits, and my family would go with me. And if I asked my son Gavin or my daughter Deanna or Adam to come and to preach that message, they could. Um, but it seems to resonate. And let me, just, let me just finish this up just with the three main points from that, but I think it kind of puts things in perspective. God wants us to get in the boat. It's an issue of obedience, isn't it? If, he, if he's compelling us to get in, or we find ourselves in the midst of the storm, guess what? God wants you there. <laughs> That's a hard wrestling match to go through, but he, he, you are there because of his purposes. He's doing something in you. Secondly, stay in the boat. Stay in the boat as long as he wants you to be in the boat. Don't abandon ship. Don't try and find some quick fix, some quick relief, some quick way to get out. Fooling yourself into thinking that's the solution when it's not. God wants you to go through it. Now, the business world would say, guess what? 
find some way to get around this problem, right? That's a, an astute business person. Pretend the problem doesn't exist, get around it, avoid it. Uh, God's way doesn't work that way. You have a trial, he wants you to go through it. And as you go through it, he grows, he strengthens, he does all the things he wants to do. The final thing is then get out of the boat. Ultimately, when you get to the destination, there's more stuff for you to be doing for his glory. It may be another stormy place. I know, I want to leave you with some encouragement, right? Hey, guys, we're living in a sin-cursed world. This is not our home. This is temporary. We are ambassadors. We're sojourners. We have yet an inheritance prepared for us. And so we have that perspective so that when things happen in this world, we say, God, you are doing this for your redemptive purpose, for your glory, and my good is part of that. Thank you, Lord, for using me and for loving me in such a way that you would choose to to glorify yourself through what I'm going through. Because I am confident, I am certain, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that there is yet a hope for me. Now, friends, you're going through a stormy place, I'm sure. These four principles are timeless. He sends us, he watches us, he helps us, and he is completing us through all of that. I'm just going to encourage you just to take time by yourself and just to let that settle and allow God to do his work in your life. Lord, help us today as we contemplate, Lord, the implications of what we've looked at today. Oh, the disciples struggled. The disciples tried to figure out what was going on. But, Lord, you, you were always at work, always aware, always purposeful, always there to help, always conforming us, Lord, to your purposes. Thank you, Lord, for not abandoning us. And it's hard, Lord, to even say thank you, Lord, for the trial. But, Lord, when we know that you're the one who establishes it, who works through it. Lord, we only want what is best for your glory. So, Lord, give us a right perspective. Forgive us, Lord, of our sinful wanderings. Help us, Lord, to embrace you and get perspective and understanding. And, Lord, help us to know what to do in those times so that we can glorify you. We ask this in your name. Amen.